1: while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. Welcome to a very special episode 10 of Fly on the Call, candid conversations on music. This week is special, not just because it's another milestone as far as episode count, double digits, but it's also by far the longest discussion on the podcast to date, and for good reason. Today, I'm extremely excited to feature a conversation with Shane Told of Silverstein, diving deep on the 10-year anniversary of their album, A Shipwreck in the Sand. The anniversary was technically back in March, but that was before this podcast was even a thought in my head. This is my favorite album by one of my favorite bands, and I was so happy to be able to nerd out with Shane for an hour and a half. For those unfamiliar, the overarching story of this concept album is that of a man with an illness who finds out that his wife is cheating on him and sets fire to his own home with his wife and child still inside. There's much more to the story that's hit on throughout the conversation and much of the narrative is open to interpretation, so I highly suggest you check out the album yourself. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you know about a contest that I'm running to celebrate 10 episodes. I will be giving away three prize packs of a magnet, pin, and two-sticker bundle. And because the podcast has officially hit 500 plays, there will also be a grand prize of the same combo, plus a copy of The Shipwreck in the Sand in the format of your choosing, vinyl, CD, or digital. All you need to do is go to twitter.com slash retweet the pinned tweet, and reply to it with a quick sentence letting me know what your favorite episode of Flying the Call is and why. A link will also be in the show notes. And if you send me a screenshot of you rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, that's worth an extra three entries. The deadline is next Tuesday, November 12th at 8pm Eastern, and the winner will be announced in episode 11. And now, without further ado, here's my interview with Shane Told of Silverstein. because uh Shiprock is like such a concept record and obviously we're going to be talking about that a lot could you just start off with the, just like a quick summary for people who may not know the record
0: yeah it's um it's what's been referred to i guess as a high concept record um or, you know I, I whatever the fuck that really means i don't know um but i guess like it it's it's it just it, there's a, it's very involved you know um they're kind of sometimes you'll have a concept record where You know, a couple of the songs don't fit into the story as much or like they're all the songs are kind of like about, you know, a certain theme that's kind of like makes it a concept record. But this uh, this album tells a story uh, from start to finish, um, you know, kind of one kind of like a movie, you know, um, uh, or a book like that. And um, it it never wavers. Uh, from that, except for a couple, you know, flashback sort of songs, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's there's a few musical themes throughout it as well. Uh, but that's yeah, that's that's kind of the gist, I guess. Cool.
1: Um, and I'm curious, like, how much of the, um, the album was kind of in reaction to arrivals and departures? I, I was kind of surprised in like my research that you never really shied away from like discussing the issues surrounding that album.
0: No, I, that's you know, if people that know me. Uh, I'm pretty honest, and I'm pretty forthright, and I don't really hide, um, you know, my true feelings uh, about, you know, things, you know, with Silverstein that, that I've gone through or, or whatever, um, and I, I mean, I think that if you're a fan of my band, that's great, you know, because <laughs> I, you know, I'm an open book, uh, but yeah, I mean, of Departures was a really, was a real shit time, to be honest, man, like, like, uh, we wrote these songs, and I mean, I think we, we thought they were okay. I I, I don't know. I, I think that we had a lot of confidence coming off of Discovering the Waterfront and we we thought like, you know, we wrote the songs kind of the same way we wrote Discovering the Waterfront. So we kind of thought it was all going to be fine. Um, and we had a producer with, uh, with arrivals and Departures where he didn't. I don't know. He wasn't super involved in, in the pro- producing part of it. You know, he, he didn't really change any of the songs or have suggestions. He kind of just recorded the songs, and they weren't recorded with very much, um, I don't know. There there wasn't much le- next level um, going on with the recording. It was like we got two guitars, and we got a bass and drums and vocals. Um, and then when we did Shipwreck in the Sand, we we went back to the discovering the waterfront producer Cameron Webb, um, and it was very very involved. You know, we we brought in cellos and electric cellos, and we were using all these different like sorts of uh, samples and and between songs, and and it was like there was a lot more going on, um, and we and we spent a lot more time on the record. In fact, we had so much time when we did Brook in the Sand that there were like entire days where. I would work on like one guitar lead, like eight hours for one guitar lead that on, in the end of the record, there's so many layers of, of different tracks. You can't even really even hear it. The one I'm talking about. So, you know, it's, it's, it really was, um, you know, a rea- I don't know if you used the term reactionary, uh, to, to ship to, um, uh, ravels Departures, but that's absolutely what it was. I mean, we ran at a time on a Ravel's and Departures. We were like, there's no fucking way that's happening again we booked like two solid months um, in the studio in, in Toronto as well. That's another thing we did is is we, we recorded Shipwreck in the Sand in Toronto, not in Los Angeles like we'd done the previous two records because we mm-hmm. found LA was, there's a lot of distractions, um, you know, recording in LA. It was mm-hmm. just so many things going on and friends and, you know, Rattles and Departures, we kind of like, we were kind of partying like while we were making the record and I think that that's you chose on that record um that that it was you don't know it, gotcha. it was it <laughs> was not a good record and then a shipwreck in the sand mm-hmm. for me you know at the time that we we um we made it and even all these years later 10 years later I think that record still holds up really really well
1: yeah def- def- definitely it was it was actually like the first Record that came out after when I was like fully into Silverstein, so it definitely holds like a special place in my heart in that way.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, to me, it's 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 kind of the. I think it was at the time by far our best record we 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 ever made. We had we had made, you know, and I was super proud of it. And uh, it was challenging record. I mean, there's there's a lot going on, you know. So it was it was not an easy record either, but um, there was a lot more focus and. And I, I think that I really felt I had something to something to prove, you know, with it um, mm-hmm. after after Revivals and Departures was such a, you know, just not a good experience.
1: You mentioned like all the time you had in the studio. And I know like when I was doing my research, I saw a lot of like talk about kind of focusing on a lot of like the little details in the album and transitions and stuff like that. And yeah. it was like kind of the first time you guys had an emphasis on um, the guest vocalists with like Liam from Cancer Bats and Scott from Comeback Kid and Lights. Um, how did that, like the recording process kind of affect all of that and um, like allow like for that experimentation?
0: Uh, Well, I mean, we had, like I said before, we had a lot of time and we, we put a lot of time into uh, crafting the songs and the arrangements. Um, and what was kind of a bit unique was the, the music was pretty much completely done. Um, but there was no, like I hadn't written any lyrics, um, at all yet. So what was kind of cool is, is I was able to take all these instrumental songs, some of which that I had written and some some of which the other guys had written, you know, we'd written together. And I was able to say, okay, now that we have these, you know, whatever it was, like 12 songs and the two little extra interludes that we put in, um, once we have those uh, together, it was like, okay, now I'm going to write this entire thing. You know, I'm going to (laughs) take this story that I've sort of, I guess storyboarded, you know, made an idea of like kind of where in the, the plot, where the different um, events are going to take place. And once that, once that kind of all came together, it was cool because then it was like, okay, we're going to cement this song as let's say, you know, well, a great fire. We knew that was going to be track one and this certain thing had to happen. And then in vices, which is track two, this certain thing. So we there was no changing the track listing later. We we had committed pretty much as I was writing the lyrics to the to the entire record the way it was written uh, before we had started recording anything. So the mm-hmm. the first the first three albums we had done, and even you know albums we did after that, we didn't. When you're recording a record, you don't necessarily know. Okay, this is going to be track one, or this is going to be track eleven. Um, you know, you record the songs and then afterwards you say, okay, what, what is, you know, how is this going to work? So committing to that early and then also like a lot of people don't know this, um, especially if you're listening on like Spotify or something, but, um, it it was actually split into four chapters as well. So the Mm -hmm. first three songs all kind of blended in together and then there was a break the next three and then there was, you know, or, or four and then there was a break and, uh, and that was kinda like a uh another kind of you know, I thought was kind of an interesting uh way to do to do the, the map out the record. Um mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so that, that was that was kinda the the uh how it how we started with the writing process. And uh then, you know, it was kinda like going back and forth between like, okay, if we if we were gonna tweak something musically, um then the lyrics are affected and then the concept is therefore affected. So there was a lot of back and forth between kind of figuring out what the lyrics were going to do and in the music and then, and then the, you know, overall the the story as well. So instead of just a a regular record that bands have made, you know, thousands of times, if not millions of times, where you kind of just write music and write words and then that's a song, This, you know, with the concept, it was almost like there was a third, um, you know, a third thing um, on top of of the, you know, music and lyrics.
1: Yeah. And I actually read in um, I think it was like one of the interviews that I read with either you or Paul um, that you talked about kind of um, like when writing the music itself, you were you had it in mind like that you were servicing the album as a whole rather than each song as a separate Mm -hmm. entity. So you kind of had more leeway with like the structure as far as, um, straying away a little bit more from like the verse chorus verse, um, kind of style. Could you talk a little bit more about that and how that, um, changed?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it was really important, not only that this, that this story and this idea worked, um, in terms of being a linear, uh, story and there being characters, and there being growth of you know characters throughout the album um that was all very important but at the same time it was very important for each song to stand on its own um in the context of like well what if you know someone's just got this on a mix cd or or like you know i mean nowadays on you know spotify on shuffle like something could come on and I didn't want it to be like, oh, this doesn't make any sense in terms of its being its own entity, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so like a song uh, like Born Dead, for example, which is you know, one of my favorite songs on the record. That song is pretty much about, you know, the U.S. healthcare system or lack thereof. Um, and that song kind of stands on its own, um, making that point uh, about that. Which is funny because it's been 10 years and it's still like a number one, one of the number one issues in, in the country. Uh, but, you know, that issue and having that be there on its own in, in the in the context of one song, I think that it, it, it does a great job and stands on its own as, as saying something. And in the context of the entire record, it's also a really important part of the story, you know, because this is kind of when you realize uh, about the the whole, you know, medical like issues that, that are going on, you know, within the character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so, so that's, that's just an example of, uh, of that, which, which was hard it was really hard, you know, cause cause like, you know, um, it, it wasn't always easy to, to be able to have put in all the little things you needed and then have them not be, be like sort of random in the context of one song. Um, but mm-hmm. overall, I, I felt like um, I did a pretty good job of of making those songs kind of pop on their own. And, you know, nobody would have foreseen streaming and shuffling and all this that, that is taking place, you know, now. Um, no one knew that was going to happen, but it's kind of good that that I did think about that more. Um, you know, like there were talks, there was talk of, of for example, having the The album instead of being fourteen tracks, have it only be four. So the entire first three songs are one track, um, mm-hmm.
1: which which oh.
0: I, which would have been which would have been kind of crazy. I think uh, <laughs> it would have been unique. I don't I don't know of, of really any records that have d- ever done that. Um, you know, but the idea was like, okay, well, people need to hear the whole, you know, hear this whole chapter to understand. The concept, and I was like, you know what? I don't think so. I think like, I think each of these songs, you know, can stand on their own.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And was Broken Stars? Was that originally written during the Arrivals and Departures?
0: Ah, you called me out on the one, the one, the one exception. Yes, (laughs) yes. Um, It it was, and that's that's. I'm glad that you uh, called me out and brought that up. So yeah, Broken Stars (laughs) was was a song. It was actually. The first song that I completed the lyrics for for "Arrivals and Departures," I wrote oh, wow. it on an airplane. Um, I remember. I remember very well how how it. I had this music and I was like really hot on it. I thought it was like a really, really cool uh, song musically, and I'd, I'd written it, and uh, I wrote it on an airplane. And I I wrote it all, just kind of. I've never done this before, or before or since. I was, you know usually when I'm writing like lyrics and a melody to a song, I have a guitar with me and I'm able to kind of sing or hum, you know, the melody I want. I wrote this like with headphones listening, listening uh, to it, like to the music. And then I wrote the words and I kind of just like in my head, like um, I just kind of like visual, like not visualized, but, but I just kind of like thought about what, how the melody would go. And obviously, mm-hmm. like, rhythmically, you know, you know how many syllables something has to be to fit in a part. But melodically, like, you kind of don't. So I kind of knew it was going to be like, my mind's made up. Like, I knew that was going to be there, but I didn't know if the melody was going to be what the melody was going to be like. It was just in my head. So it was kind of mm-hmm. kind of a unique song. So I wrote that and, you know, showed it to the guys and like and the producer and they like weren't feeling it and uh which which is funny because i think if that song was on was on a rival's departure it would be like by far the best song but yeah they like weren't feeling it and i don't know if it was because it was the first song or, or like that they heard or what but like i got like kind of a weird vibe so we recorded you know the other 11 songs um and then we recorded uh these other two for that record that were on like a best buy exclusive um one was called um, "Rain Will Fall" and the other was called uh, "Falling Down." So those songs w- were recorded, and and you know we we kind of knew those were weaker songs, so they were sort of like B sides, and and then "Broken Stars" was recorded too, but it was recorded like those those songs weren't recorded as well either. And I actually recorded the vocals later um, with a different with my friend producer later on actually. Um, cause the producer for Ravels Departures was, we were on such a time crunch. We didn't have time to finish the vocals for that. So, um, anyway, I, I know I'm going like way off here, but so that song, uh, Broken Stars, I always believed in it as like a, just a really cool, uh, just a really cool song. Like I, I thought it was, I had a lot of life to it. I thought it was catchy and I like loved the ending, you know, kind of the breakdown part. Um, it kind of mm-hmm. reminded me of a hate breed or something. So I, I really liked the uh, the song and I didn't want it to just kind of be a B side and fall through the tracks, the the cracks. So I just I decided, OK, we'll put these other two falling down and rain will fall. We'll put those on the uh, as the kind of, you know, throwaway B sides for the Best Buy exclusive. And they really were throwaway tracks for a long time, like until now, when, you know, everything's on streaming services, like nobody really even knew those songs. And I didn't want that to happen with, with um uh with Broken Stars. So when we started writing the album, um, and I had that that song done and I had the lyrics done, uh, for the most part, I, I think. Um I don't know how much of it I changed, but I kind of felt like it could fit in the uh it could kind of fit in with the story in that three hole. Um Kind of where the transition between like Vices and, and, uh, I guess the next, next song is, uh, American Dream. I, I kind of felt like it, there was a place for it. And that's the one thing that, like, when I've told people, and I haven't told that many people that, that I wrote that song before for the other record, they said, well, how does this make sense if you're writing this concept record? And that was, that was the one exception, uh, to the rule where, where, uh, where I, you know, I, I cheated a little bit, I guess.
1: Yeah, it definitely. I feel like it stands out like slightly just based on because I mean, Shipwreck is kind of like the heaviest record that at the time, especially, but even yeah. now in some ways. Um, so I think I feel like it definitely you can see that it came from or s- see how it could have come from like another session. But that's, that's cool that you were able to bring it back. Yeah, yeah, and interesting to see how it fit into that, like the process of the writing, writing the record.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And in, in it, uh, it's a song that I think we played, probably played live. Um, well, maybe Vices we played the most live on that record, but it's this is, Broken Stars is another one that's you know became like a staple of our live set, and it was you know an important, definitely an important song for that record. So I'm kind of glad that that shook out the way it did. Although for a while I did wonder like. Okay, maybe if Broken Stars was you know track three on Arrivals Departures, maybe that record would have, you know, had, you know, had more to it. But maybe not. You know, maybe maybe that song being heavier and stuff, um, you know, set the tone a little bit for the shipwreck in the sand writing. I, you know, I, I'm not sure.
1: Oh, uh, and I know you had like released the like demo version of Broken Stars back. I think it was like October 2008 before the album was released in. Like March two thousand nine. Um, oh, really, at that point, we really was released,
0: it really released? Really
1: released it? Well, you like released it on, put it up on MySpace. Um, Weird. Okay. And um, so, like at that time, do you know if that if it was planned to be part of the record or was it kind of to hold people over to, for the new That's, record? You know
0: what? I, I I my memory is usually really good for all this stuff, and <laughs> I now that you say that, I, maybe I do vaguely remember us having that out, and I think it was probably. It was probably like a holdover, um, but but, me, me, I'm, but we must have known it was going to be on the record. We must have known that. <laughs> I th- I think I don't know. That's that is kind of weird. And I remember the demo version of the vocals were pretty bad. Like I I did it really quickly, so I'm surprised that we we released it. But I guess <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was it was a different world back then, you know. Um,
1: yeah, for sure. But we didn't have a
0: lot. We never had a lot of like uh, extra stuff like. We, you know, you hear about bands that record, like, you know, almost entire records worth of material that, like, stuff never sees the light of day. We were never that band, like, uh, ever. So, for us to have uh, that song kicking around was probably, mm-hmm. for us, was probably, like, kind of, like, we were like, oh, this is, like, weird. We have this. Why? Like, w- you know, what are we doing with it? If, if it's just kicking around, mm-hmm. maybe we should, you know, uh, show people I guess. I guess so that that's probably was was our thinking um but <laughs> yeah it's, it's kind of funny looking back now at that
1: yeah definitely and, and you mentioned it being kind of like a different world back then um i yeah. thought like the the rollout of the album was kind of interesting like i saw a lot of places from back in two thousand nine, like referring to it as like a viral marketing campaign, the way you um, like teased the track list and chapter titles, and then yeah. had clips of a couple songs, and then did the actual like the full stream on MySpace, which was kind of like ahead of its time, considering how like prevalent premieres became. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that that like rollout?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I remember we'd I had written, uh, like a. It was from it was partly from the like title track. I don't know if it was the actually like what I speak um in the title track or if it was something like sort of parts of that, but mm. we wrote this thing, and I remember we signed it with our initials, like our five initials or something like that. I think we did that unless I'm mixing that up with something else, but anyway, we, we re- released this kind of thing it was like. Uh, somebody, you know, and we didn't tell, we didn't say who that was our band and everybody thought that it was brand new. <laughs> so, so, and I can sort of see that cause that's so, that brand new song about like the ship and say that the captain or like, you know, that song on the end of, at the end of Tendu, uh, mm-hmm. I I think that because of the shipwreck in the sand and the references to like sailors and stuff, I, I, people so people were really like like it was it was kind of a, a, a you talk about viral marketing it definitely worked cuz there was a lot of of speculation on you know at that time it was like i guess social media and and like and like message boards and stuff there's a lot of talk of like mm-hmm. okay who who is this and so nobody knew it was us for a while and then i remember jason uh from absolute punk he which is kind of it's kind of a shitty thing for him to do actually but i guess you know he doesn't care but he he posted like a a graphic of silver surfer um like in the the comments and since it was like he you know he was running the website you know absolute punk the absolute punk website uh then everyone's like oh so jason knows who it is cuz the news was submitted to him or whatever so he kind of leaked that it was us and then once he did that everyone's like oh silverstein like you know they suck, and their last record was horrible, and what it right, so so that that was kind of how that shook out. I remember, and I remember we spelt I used when I wrote it. I, you know, you write a thing, and it's a big long thing. And you don't always like check, and I remember I used uh, I used woman like M E N in, instead of woman, uh, like <laughs> at one point. So I made like a grammatical error. And people were like, "There's no way brand new would ever make a grammatical error in their in the in their <laughs> like you know statement or whatever." Like, and it's like I remember that. I remember just this, I remember just reading that and being like, "That's that's like funny." And then thinking to myself, "How do I fuck that up?" But uh, you know, <laughs> it, it was um, yeah, we did do that, and, and I think yeah, I, I don't remember exactly the, the whole like rolling it out with a stream. I feel like we did that like a lot of times that was kind of a thing you would do like the the day before you'd release the record yeah like on a MySpace stream and then you know hopefully that was hyping it up um mm-hmm. but i remember the other thing too is was um it was our last album for victory um on our contract so so we were effectively like free agents after this record was released and uh, Tony, the the owner of Victory, he really wanted us to re-sign. And oh, okay. we we were like, well, you know, uh, we we were pretty pretty done with Victory at that point. You know, we we'd had some issues, and we'd done four records, and we were such a young band when we signed. It was like, okay, now finally, it's like you know, it's like the baseball player, like it's like Bryce Harper when you know he's finally done his contract with the Washington Nationals, and he's like he's like, okay, well. I'm going to, I'm, it's not that I don't want to play for the Washington Nationals. It's that I want to kind of go around and take meetings and kick tires, you know, and see what else is out there, you know? And ultimately Mm -hmm. he signed with the Phillies, but you know, it it was that kind of a thing where we were like, okay, well we, we want to, we want to see what else is out there, but victory Mm -hmm. didn't like that. And I understand from their perspective that okay well if this band isn't coming back if we don't have any future interest in this band's music well we're not going to promote it as much as we are if we do you know what i mean it's just it just makes sense mm-hmm. so for for that i think that the record sort of um didn't get pushed uh as hard as the other records um at all and that was kind of too bad because i i was like you know this record is Way beyond anything we've done. This record should be yeah. selling... Like, this should sell more than Arrivals and Departures, you know, the first week. And mm-hmm. it didn't. So, the record didn't... You know, at that point, our records had continued... Like, they'd sold more and more. Like Even Arrivals and Departures, a lot of people don't know that. Like, it, it had a bigger first week than Discovering the Waterfront did. So, uh, yeah. we were expecting, I think, bigger. And then when the record didn't do super well in the first week... Um, I think we were all kind of like bummed on that mm-hmm. because we, we'd put so much into the album and, you know, we thought that kind of all the stuff we'd done around it had been, uh, you know, good. And we thought the music videos we made were like way better than, you know, some of the ones we'd done before. Not that they're great now, but you know, it was like, <laughs> it, it, I mean, they're all pretty, all our videos are pretty terrible, but the, you know, it was just there was just a lot there that we thought was was better. So it was it was kind of too bad that the the record didn't come like didn't come out with a bang. It, it really did hmm. grow over time. And, and word of mouth, you know, people, um, you know, it legitimized our band, I think, a lot. And it it made for made so people like they started to take discovering the waterfront more serious as a record, I think. Because they knew we were capable of of the stuff that we did on Shipwrecker in the Sand, so it really did like kind of bolster our I think our fan base and and cement us as uh, as kind of a real band, like a career band. Um, (laughs) Even though the success we we had waned a little bit, like we had fallen off um, with in terms of like the sales, uh, and and I think even our shows, like the the headliner we did in 2009, actually didn't, didn't even do that. Well, like we, we were used to selling out every show we played when we headlined like entire tours sold out. And then in 2009, I think we, we like only sold out, you know, we just sold out the shows. Like we always sell out like California and you know, New York and stuff in Chicago, maybe. So it was like, Oh shit. Like, are we, are we falling off? Like, is this, is this thing, you know, is this kind of going away now? So there was a fear there as well. Um, you know, from the business side of things.
1: It, that's really interesting, like you talking about kind of like how it was perceived at the time and everything, because like going back through like old reviews and everything, I was seeing a bunch of people being like, oh, Screamo's dead, but Silverstein's somehow still doing it. And like a lot of people kind of saying like, oh, Rivals was horrible, but now hopefully they'll gain some of their fan base back. So it's really interesting just like kind of seeing the differences in the way it was taken at the time versus how it is yeah. now. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And and I mean, I haven't done what you've done. I you know, I haven't looked back at that stuff. Um I'm sure it would be very interesting though. Um uh, you know, to see, but I I I do remember though that 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 was a thing too. That screamo was all of a sudden like it was it was like all of a sudden a thing and then all of a sudden it was not like dead. You know, it was like mm-hmm. it, it, there is never this there wasn't like a big window of time when it was like thing it seemed like people were rejecting the term and then right when it was like maybe people were accepting it they were they all of a sudden it was it was over and (laughs) we never like really cared about the the way that bands that like anyone was labeling us whether it was emo or screamo or or post hardcore or like i fucking still don't know what we are um (laughs) but the but the fact remains that we we never we never left you know we we did we started in the year 2000 and it's almost, it's been almost 20 years that we've just, we've been a band like all the time doing this. We never went away. We never broke up. We never took hiatus. So for us, you know, it's, we were just doing the same thing. Um, and I guess like, you know, if you think of it as 10 years ago, so that's like half of our career ago, uh, with this album, you know, I think at the time we weren't really concerned with, with that. Um, you know of, of the, what people were saying and, and at the time too a lot of, a lot of a lot of um, people weren't expecting us to make like a heavier record. I think I think that the what, what tended to happen back then was a lot of the, the bands that, that were like the screamo bands or whatever they started making records with less screaming like I remember census fail put out a record that was way like had hardly any screaming on it. And, you know, it seemed like that was what everyone was trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, t- was tra- you know, people were trying to get on the radio and there was never going to be screaming on the radio was the was the, the theory. And uh, mm-hmm. so so everyone's writing, you know, trying to write that that softer stuff. And so when we came out with the uh, heavier record, I think people were really like, oh, shit, like this is kind of cool that this band doesn't give a fuck about, you know, that. Um, hmm. And then we were like, oh, and then when, when we started being less successful, we were like, man, damn, may, maybe we should have written some more poppy shit, you know, but there were <laughs> bands, but the bands that were, get, were getting big that were coming out were like, were heavier bands like Devil's Prada, Who Do We Took on Tour and, and A Day to Remember, we took on tour and um, uh, I don't know who else, I guess, I guess uh, August Burns Red was getting big at that time. Um, and a lot of these, these bands were like, oh, it was like, okay, this is screaming. Like some of these bands only scream, uh, Parkway Drive was another one. And it's like, okay, well, these bands are getting popular and they, they just scream. Then, you know, there is like a market for, for like the heavier stuff, you know?
1: Yeah. So was it like kind of purposeful on your end to kind of like double down and make the record heavier? Or did that kind of happen a little more like naturally?
0: I think it was more natural. We, we didn't, we didn't really like, uh, talk about it but I think arrivals was a, was a popular record and that just I don't know that just sort of happened too so maybe it was a bit of a maybe it was a bit of a reaction to that like we didn't you know but it wasn't like we didn't force um, force the heavy stuff like something mm-hmm. like uh like I am the arsonist which is maybe you know one of the heaviest songs we've ever done uh, that song that song came out pretty naturally there was no you know, there was no, there was no talk of like, of like, okay, we're going to do this, uh, this, this metal song. And, you know, it just kind of happened.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, And I mean, this was like the first, uh, like the first concept record that you guys did. And I know you've said before, kind of how the planning process kind of was really hard on you and you thought you might never do it again. Um, but I mean, since, since you've done this, how the wind shifts and I am alive and everything I touch, which are kind of like their own unique concepts. Um, but can you like reflect a little bit on what you learned from the process of writing shipwreck and like how that changed and influenced the process for the other concept albums?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I remember I was, I was in Las Vegas by the pool. Um, I'm not sure which hotel but uh by the pool and I had my notebook and I remember it was like okay I got to start thinking about you know getting some lyrics together for this for this record and that's when something hit something hit me in my head I think it was actually kind of started from the the uh the whole US healthcare thing that was going on at the time because politically you know this was Right before Obama got um, elected, right when this when we were, um, when we were writing this, I think I think Obama got elected while we were recording. Yep, that makes sense. Or at least, yeah, I think I think he was or or at least he was he was um, maybe not maybe not um, elected, but he was like you know sworn in um, at the time. Mm. So there was a lot of stuff, like a lot of talk, you know, at that at that time about uh the the healthcare system and obama like one of his main things was was that and i remember him saying this he said you know uh, he said like i don't healthcare is not a privilege um it's a right i believe that healthcare is a right not a privilege and that's the literally the first lyrics of of uh born dead which i guess i'm quoting obama obama which you know something this is something he said you know on the campaign trail um you know uh, so th- there was some like a lot i had a lot of opinions about it because i'm canadian and and we we have universal healthcare and it's great and i don't have to worry about anything and it was really like kind of disheartening to me when i started understanding more about the us system and you know, having I knew some some friends of mine that like had been in car accidents and like fucking gone bankrupt and shit because they didn't have health insurance, which to me is like it was so insane to me that that was a thing. So uh, mm-hmm. so I I, uh, you know, started, you know, doing a little bit of like kind of research and thinking about it. And then I think that that's kind of where I came up with this uh, with the concept for this character who had, you know, had medical issues and, like, you know, not just physically but also, like, mental health issues that he was kind of unable to get any sort of, uh, you know, care um, based on the system. And then just sort of how that could, you know, uh, affect a man and his family, you know, or per- I shouldn't say hmm. man, but a person and his family uh, uh, or their family, uh, you know, in, in my case, it's a man. Uh, so that's why I use that that uh, terminology. but. So that's kind of where it all came from. And I remember just sort of starting to write it out and saying, okay, like, like there's this, maybe what if there's an event, like a big, you know, something that happens. And it made me think of the, uh, a little bit of in Fight Club when, uh, when Edward Norton's uh, character, when, when he, there's like a, a apartment, like explosion, like a bomb goes off in his apartment and he's like, he doesn't have anywhere to go because, you know. he, he, I don't know. He's like, he's dealing with the insurance companies and all this stuff. Right. And, and like, obviously later you find out that he did the whole thing himself. Spoiler for anyone that hasn't seen fight club. Uh, sorry about (laughs) that. But, uh, so that, that actually, I guess was sort of another, another sort of way that I, another sort of idea that I, I borrowed, um, for the concept was the, was this sort of idea that, that there was this big event. So, you know that you couple that and then you have like the relationship with with his wife and all that too so so I started writing this um i started writing this this kind of like just these ideas down in this notebook and uh like literally by the pool in las vegas and and on a vacation and that's kind of where uh sort of the ideas came from um and i i've kind of i've trailed i've trailed like far away from from uh, where your original question was but um What was it again?
1: So I asked about the writing process, which you elaborate on. And I was just curious how it kind of like influenced the other concept albums that you've done. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so once, you know, I had this kind of idea and then it ended up being real. I remember I told the band about it and they thought I was completely out of my mind. Like they, they were (laughs) like, this is, I don't, they they didn't, didn't, they didn't really believe in me that I was going to be able to pull it off. Um, and I think that, like Neil in particular was pretty annoyed when I kept talking about the concept. I kept use, using the word concept and, and using the word story. And I think he was like, just kind of annoyed um, with the whole like kind of thing. Um, but, but yeah. So, you know, when I was writing, when we were doing the the record uh, and I was so like, you know, 24 hours a day, I was thinking about this thing. Like I was, I was dreaming about it and I was, you know, up late at night, you know, like thinking, like tossing and turning in bed thinking about, okay, is this song make sense? Is this lyric, you know, whatever. This is like kind of when I'm writing all the mu- all the lyrics and I had a lot of trouble sleeping, which is very much like like Fight Club as well. And uh and I remember there's there's like some some studio documentaries that were actually released with the record and there's a bunch of them where I'm like asleep on the studio couch. Cause I would stay up like all night, not being able to sleep. And then I get to the studio and then be like all kind of warm and cozy in there. And I'd fall asleep. And I'd just, you know, cause I was so immersed in, in the, the character and the writing. um, And it was a really hard time. Like uh, again, for me, like I, I was, I put everything into this and when it was finally done, I was like, okay, this, I think this record is really good, but, but man, like having to do this, if I had to do this again, like it might kill me. Um like I don't know if I can get through this just with the lack of sleep and the and everything. So so when we when it came time to make the next album, um Rescue, we well Rescue is a little bit different too because uh, you know, I mentioned before the thing about how we were free agents and we you know, we weren't mm-hmm. on Victory anymore, so we were un, we were now an unsigned artist. So we uh we with with um Rescue, we actually had made a bunch of demos. So Rescue wasn't written all at once um like most of our albums. Uh and and um and so when we did when we were writing starting to write Rescue like I think we wrote like five or six songs um kind of right after Shipwreck came out. Um we wrote those songs and then we kind of shopped them around, sent them to some different labels and then uh, about a year later we we wrote another, you know, five or six songs and we pretty much had the entire uh the entire rescue album written but it was written like it wasn't written at all in the way a concept record was which for me was really great and really easy because i'd you know it was like okay I just one song at a time this song's good you know and instead of it being one concept it was you know it was like 12 concepts which is fine and that's a fine way to make a record so we did rescue and you know, uh, Rescue didn't speak to me uh, the way that Shipwreck did, and not not to say that there aren't some great songs on the record, and um, you know maybe some some of the best songs we've ever done are on that record actually. But in terms of a of a full album, a full entity, um, uh, it didn't do what at all. You know, for me and for our turns out our fans that a shipwreck in the sand did so. Once that happened and it had been, you know, we're talking about like four years um, since Shipwreck had come out, I was like, OK, I can get back on the saddle now and I can do another concept record. Like I have this in me again to do this. And that's when uh, when I had the idea for for those saddle wind shifts and the paired songs and then the the backward stuff and then the songs that. The, like the one song that if you play it on top of the other song, it forms a third song. You know, like like even crazier stuff than Shipwreck in the Sand uh, was. So I think that, that Shipwreck gave me the confidence that I could do it. And mm-hmm. and then with This Out of the Wind Shifts, that, that gave me, you know, even more confidence, I think, because that, that record is, I think, is my favorite one we've ever done. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So I, I think that... that yeah definitely shipwreck paved the way for uh for all the conceptual stuff that we we did later on um including dead reflection because dead reflection a lot of people don't really understand is 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 quite a concept to it as well so
1: okay i I didn't know that either
0: (laughs) yeah no no one really we didn't really talk about it nobody really asked and and like but it is (laughs) yeah so you know it, it yeah it is
1: uh, so was, you mentioned like the process of shipwreck or of, uh, this is how the wind shift. Was it like, you mentioned that was like crazier ideas even than shipwrecks. So was it like a smoother, um, process or was it kind of similar in that it like took a lot out of you?
0: Mm. Yeah, uh, it, it was different. It was different. Uh, I think it it took a lot out of me in, a, in sort of a different way, um, the, the one thing that, again, like the band thought I was absolutely crazy trying to do this, the two songs, um, well, they're, they're, you know, they're called This Is How and The Wind Shifts. And when you put them together, they form This Is How The Wind Shifts and, and, and you know, they, they form a third song. So when I said to this, okay, I'm going to put, I'm going to do this, they were like, that, like what, how's that going to work? Like, you're trying to do like the Pink Floyd thing where if you play, if you play, you know, um, Dark Side of the Moon – over the wizard of oz it, like lines up with the with the movie you know i'm sure you've heard about that like they're like what you're trying to do something like that like that's crazy like you know you're never going to you're never going to be able to, to do that and i said well you know if i put one song in a minor key and the other one in the you know one in the major and the other in the relative minor and i do this and this and this rhythm like maybe i can maybe i can pull this off and then i did um, but it was not without a lot of labor um, and a lot of a lot of thinking and a lot of kind of a lot of lack of sleep on that one too.
1: I remember being like super excited to rip the this is how the windshift CD on my computer and throw the MP3s into Audacity and right. hear like the the doubled product. And I, I think I remember seeing you mentioned Absolute Punk before. I think in the, their review of the album, they were like, "These two songs are like really similar for no apparent reason." And I tweeted them. I was like you have to play them together. <laughs> right,
0: right, yeah. No, that was cool. And that was cool. We did we ended up doing the 7-inch the box set where we had the yeah. you know the paired songs on each side of the 7-inch and stuff. And then we had the one like the single songs were single sided so that you could play them on the same time with two with two record players. So, yeah, that that stuff was always really cool, but but yeah, I mean, being able to do Shipwreck and and, and have that work out was the way I got the confidence mm. for that. Um, you know, absolutely.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. And um, you mentioned a couple of times being like free agents after this record. Um, but then you, you ended up going with Victory for like the live album. How how did that kind of decision come together?
0: Well, uh, the the honest truth is that Victory, you know, had the rights to the songs. So oh. we kind of either had to put it out with them or or get permission from them. So we we ended up yeah we ended up doing a separate deal with them for the for the the ten year uh, live album, and uh, gotcha. <laughs> and that's that's yeah that's how that all came out and that was a pretty cool experience too actually the uh, you know that was kind of in the same record cycle as Shipwreck in the Sand Shipwreck in the Sand had, had been out for like a year or so I think mm. when when we did that those shows you know the four the four shows where we, we played like all of our stuff. And that's still like the only time the fourth night of that tour is still the only time that we we've, we've played um, a shipwreck in the sand in full and the only time we've played we ever played some of those songs like uh, mm. I don't think we ever played um, we are not the world and I knew I couldn't trust you and yeah those those songs I think the only time we ever played those those songs were were at the, at that show.
1: And then two, I'm guessing, probably. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. In the end. Yeah, exactly. In the end. That's that's right. That's the only time we have ever played the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And we had Jackie uh, Jackie Sandel sing sing it with us that night. That's cool. She came up from New York for it.
1: Oh, yeah. That's really rad. Uh, and do you have, like, any specific memories of that night? Like, especially the the shipwreck night. Uh, like you said, it was almost, like, a year after the album came out. How were you kind of feeling about it at that point?
0: Uh, t- Super stressed. Uh, about that whole experience um, it was I was very very happy when it was over and it worked out and everything was fine because we you know we would planned four nights um, at the this venue called the El Combo in Toronto which is like a legendary, legendary venue if there's any if there's like a CBGB of Toronto and there isn't one this is as close as it gets you know so we booked the four nights and we had to learn All of our songs, again, we had to practice everything. We had to make sure everything was going to be, you know, perfect. And it was a lot of rehearsal, um, especially on the songs that we'd never played before. And it was also like the shows were pretty long, um, especially at the time, because we were doing an entire album and then we'd we'd walk off and we'd come back and we'd do, you know, like the greatest hits of the of the songs that weren't on the album, you know, so we'd come back Hmm. and we'd play My Heroine or Smile in Your Sleep. Um, you know, or or on the discovering the waterfront night, we'd come out and we'd play smash smash to pieces, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, mm-hmm. I was pretty nervous about it because I, I it, everything was getting recorded, and uh, I, I was really concerned about my voice too. And doing the mm-hmm. four nights in a row, these long shows, um, I, I, th- I was just concerned that my voice was going to get blown out, or or something was going to was going to go wrong with it. And then, when we finally finished that that fourth show, I remember it was we went out for for dinner after and and I was like so stoked that it all worked out and uh <laughs> we didn't make too many mistakes,
1: yeah, definitely. I think it was the first time in a long time that I listened to it recently, and um the vocals were like really to the front in like the mix of the audio, and I thought they sounded really great. I was kinda surprised like f- how good they sounded for being a live album.
0: Well, though there's some auto tune <laughs> on them. Uh, de- <laughs> definitely auto tune, uh for sure, but um you know, hey, like you can we could have we could have good vocal sound great or like okay vocal sound okay, which would you rather have? <laughs> uh, you know, so it's uh it's it it's fine. You know, um virtually every record live record ever is is done like that now, so
1: for sure. <laughs> um and did did that guys uh kind of, did that help you guys prepare a little bit for like the Discovering the Waterfront 10 and the When Broken is 15 tour? Uh
0: I think it put it put it in our minds that 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 was something that could be could be done. Um mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of interesting though because at the time that we did that uh no bands had done had been doing the 10 year anniversary tours. Like the only mm-hmm only band I could remember that had done that was Jimmy world did a clarity tour and they they but it was really short they did they did like ten shows and they played like small venues uh and they played clarity from front to back which was one of my favorite records of all time and I remember hearing about that and being like that is so cool that they're doing that and you know especially like it's their old stuff that you know, was never on the radio never mainstream, and they, you know, it's cool that they're doing that for their fans like me that, that care about the record. So I wasn't able to go to the shows that there were none like near me, but I thought that was really cool. And then that's kind of where we had the idea to do, to do the whole 10 year thing and to do four nights and play an album each night. Uh, because it mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't until after that, that like, you know, I remember taking back Sunday, I guess it was like, like 2012, I think. When they did like mm. to tell all your friends 10- year anniversary tour and then after that it seemed like everybody was doing that. Um, you know and then of course we did we did it as well. but we'd played we'd actually did, just randomly played discovering the waterfront uh, in full like just just we'd just do it. Like we'd just show up one day and be like let's do this today and we would just do it. Like I remember we played LA one time and we just said, hey, we're just gonna do this play this record right now. Like nobody oh, wow, knew. that's really cool. Nobody knew, and then it was. Yeah, <laughs> we we did that a few times um, because we we always would switch our set lists too. And after after the the we did the four shows, where we played everything. Well, it was it was cool because we were like, okay, we literally know how to play all of our songs. Well, so why would we write a set list <laughs> for a whole tour? Let's just play whatever we want to play that day. So we did. So we we you know. I, I don't know if if you went on if you go on setlist setlist.fm if it's complete, but I'm sure if you look around 2010 and after like post those Toronto shows, uh, if you looked at our setlist, I bet they're all like radically radically different.
1: Yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. That's like super cool. It's always been something that I've appreciated, like that seeing different songs every time I see you guys play. And then I have just a couple of kind of like random questions about the album. Yeah, yeah, sure um, of course. On like allmusic.com it shows uh Silverstein's original guitarist Richard McWalter as having like a composing credit on the end. Is yeah. that in any way accurate?
0: Yes. Great. Wow. That's really really wow, that's really astute of you. Um yeah, so so Rich um yeah, Richard was our original guitar player and uh he he's amazing he's amazing he's an amazing person uh and an amazing uh guitar player so creative and uh to to me like you know he was he was the, like the really the the most important part of our band when we started i think he was he was the reason that we stood out cuz some of the guitar parts he wrote were so cool you know whether it's like the intro to The intro and outro to uh, Wish I Could Forget You, which is, you know, really cool, clean part that he wrote. And and, you know, he's amazing. So he uh, before. So I I guess I'll tell you the background of of why he left the band. So he was in the band for uh, our first um, demo. Which you can hear those songs in in all their horrible recorded glory on the uh, (laughs) 18 Candles. Uh, We we reissued those recordings. And so he played on that and we we wrote those songs together and uh, you know, we had a little bit of, a little bit of local kind of hype and we, we played a bunch of shows and, um, and then, you know, this is just like, this is in the year 2000. So we started the band in the early, early 2000. And then in Mm -hmm. September of 2000, um, me and Rich were, were the same age and we had just finished high school. So, we were both going to university. So I was going to University of Guelph, which is only about 40 minutes, uh, 40, 40, 45 minutes away from, you know, where we, where we were from. And hmm. Richard was going to Victoria, BC uh, on the other side of the, of the country, like a five hour flight um, away oh. <laughs> to study engineering. So we thought that, uh, basically the band, we, we, the band we never really thought was going to go anywhere anyway. Cause we knew, we, we knew that I was going to school. Rich was going to school. Um, Josh, Josh, Paul and, and Billy, they were all younger. Um, actually Billy wasn't even in the band yet, but, uh, they, they were all younger than us. So they were still in high school. So, you know, that was, that was just what was, was fine, you know? And so then, um, we had plans that after going to first semester of school, Richard was coming back um and we were playing a show in December, like around Christmas time. And so, you know, we were excited and, and over the like whatever, four months that we didn't do any, any shows, uh, you know, the word of mouth had grown a little bit more about about the band. And we played and uh uh it was a great show. That was I think it was Bill's first show actually. Um December twenty seventh, two thousand and, um, after we played, Richard said to me, um, yo, so I'm not coming home next summer. Um, I'm staying in BC. Oh, wow. uh, I'm going to work, work out there. I've got like a job and stuff. So, you know, and I was, you know, we were disappointed because, uh, the plan was like, okay, we're going to record some more stuff and we're going to, uh, um, you know, do our first tour. So when Rich said, um, "Rich said that he's," I'm like, "Okay, well, I guess like maybe this is just gonna be the end of the band." And he said, "You know, if you guys want to find someone else, like I won't be mad. Um, you know, it's not like we're gonna get signed to Victory or anything." Direct quote. <laughs> he literally said that. Um, oh my, so, that's perfect. So he was like, "You know, so, so that's when um, I called Neil and I got Neil to, um, I got Neil in the band and and you know." We went through, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But, uh, well, mm-hmm. but while we were working on uh, the, this, you know, this other stuff, like we, we recorded the six song, you know, demo EP. And after that, we had had a few other things that Richard had written. And, you know, me and him were working on together. And one of them was the end. And Richard wrote the music for that. And it was in a really strange tuning, um, where you tune the top, like the low string, you tune it actually up to F, um, which <laughs> is which is very like a, up a semitone, which is a very very unconventional thing to do um, to a guitar. It's been a very strange tuning, and uh, I was really intrigued by the by the kind of the way that that it sounded. So, uh, you know, when Rich left the band, uh, I. I said, I was like, "Hey, man! So, you know that acoustic song you wrote? I really like it, and I, I really, you know, I, it's your song and whatever. I'd really like to use it, um, if you know, if if that's okay." So keep in mind, this is like the year two thousand one. So like, we're still two <laughs> years away from our first album even coming out. But I said, I said, mm-hmm. I, I'd really like to you know use this song. So I remember I listened to the like shitty. Like ghetto blaster demo, um, that that we had made for the song, and I figured out how to play it. And I, I he told me what the tuning was because I wouldn't be able to figure it out without knowing what the tuning was. <laughs> so I figured out this song, and I I remember I I had one of the first titles was it was called Learning to Hurt was one of the first titles I wrote with with a bunch of different lyrics, um, and sort of different melodies, and I had that this this kind of idea of um of the song. So, when we were doing the first album, uh I had actually I actually tracked scratch like a scratch guitar um for uh f- for that song, for the end, which turned into oh, wow. the end. And so the first album it was it was supposed to be on the first album, it was supposed to be the last track. Um and we were going to cut Oof. What song were we going we to cut for the first album? I can't remember. Might have been November, actually. We, we were going to cut <laughs> November because we, we wanted to make a 10-song album. And we were going to have, mm-hmm. have the end would have been the last track. And I remember um, I recorded all the guitar and then uh, Paul recorded the drums, like the ending drum thing, which was different, mm-hmm. but not that much different. And uh, yeah, so sorry I'm going on and on about this, but I never never talked about this before. And uh, no, super so, interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, so so that I don't know. In the end, I don't know what happened. I think we kind of ran out of time. The first record was was made kind of crazy too. Like we we kind of ran out of time on the first album, and uh, then when it came time, so I kind of just forgot about it. And then when it came time to make the second record, with Discovering the Waterfront. I again I was like hey um remember this acoustic song and everyone's like oh yeah yeah I'm like I think it's really good like I think we should put it on the record and again I demoed it and again um again like we recorded the guitar for it and then again it just I don't know it just didn't didn't end up fin- getting finished um oh, wow. <laughs> and then the third record think we didn't bother trying it <laughs> i think that <laughs> like we were like that this ship ship has sailed and then when the fourth record was came, you know shipwork in the sand was we were writing that i was like okay so i know this song is like literally seven years old um and it hasn't worked out but i'm like i really think there's something here and uh and i would like to to you know actually do this one this time and Cameron cuz he produced Shipwreck in the Sand and he produced Discovering the Waterfront he remembered the the acoustic song from Discovering the Waterfront like he re- he remembered recording it and he was like oh yeah that actually like is a pretty cool like you know that's got a cool vibe to it so like maybe we should do it so finally that happened and i remember i played it for Rich cuz we're still like Rich we st- i still see Rich like he lives in Boston Boston area now, and I still we still see him like when we're out there and stuff, so um we've you know we we've, we've been friends like the whole time, and I remember he was living in Australia at the time, and this is before the record came out. We were in Australia, I guess probably the beginning of two thousand nine, and I played it for him, and he laughed and he said dude and 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 I he's like, that's like you've like played it completely wrong <laughs> <laughs> so like i I had referenced like the tape the cassette tape recording. That he just made like for me, or not even for me, just made like in the year two thousand, and and he's like, oh yeah, that's like that chord you play there is that's not that's like not the right chord or whatever, and like of course it it doesn't really matter, but it's just funny that I that I that I you know just played it I played it like, you know, maybe not wrong but different from from you know what he what he had originally written, so so there you go that's 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 why so that's why yeah he's got a songwriting credit because he wrote. The, pretty much the, the, all the music for that song
1: that's great uh, that's so perfect that you mentioned about like the wrong chord because I, I was watching like the making of documentary earlier today and there was like one point where I th- it was either paul or neil you were like no that you're playing that pattern completely wrong oh
0: oh it was, <laughs> it was bill oh yeah i was i was oh I, I look like such a dick i look like such a dick I was like, that's wrong. That's wrong. Everything's wrong. I like say something like that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I was, oh, I was so, I was so mean to to Billy. Um, And then I remember it's so, it's such a funny moment. And, and I, and I know that like, um, fans won't really understand this. So I want to put the context in it, but so I'm, I'm sitting behind, behind Bill on the couch, like probably laying down like an asshole. And so Bill's playing something wrong. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> and I, you know, and I'm like complaining. So Cameron's like, okay, well, like let's, you know, he's trying to defuse the situation. He's like, well, oh, it's okay. Like, um, you know, let's move on. Let's move something on, on to something else. So, so he's reading, he's reading the songs, um, like off that that like, okay, what's let's, let's just move to a new song, Bill. You can record something else. So he's reading the working titles for the songs. So the 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 working titles were always like ridiculous. And one of the one of the record the the songs actually we are not the world that was called pooh bum was the <laughs> was the working title, so there's a part where where Cameron's like okay well bill what do you what do you want to work on next? we got this Poobum this and bill goes pooh bum, I guess <laughs> and it's like funny 'cause no one we don't like once we don't think about how ridiculous the working titles are but that's just so funny that that's in the, that's in the documentary uh, like that <laughs> that that moment and it's just very funny and i'd love to go back and watch that that documentary again
1: it was definitely quite the experience i feel very 2009 between watching that and all the other research that i did
0: <laughs> yeah i know i know it's amazing how much you know everything's changed in 10 years um you know just how how we listen to music you know this is still this was still the cd era you know like there was, mm-hmm. there was some digital. Actually, one thing we could talk about too, if you want to go real deep, is uh, the B sides that we did um, for for this record. Uh, yeah, and definitely. We, and and we did so. Victory wanted extra songs, um, like like just like for arrivals and departures, we had those, you know, three extra songs I talked about: rain will fall, falling down, and then broken stars, which we didn't use. So for this record, Shrip in the sand, they wanted it it didn't really make sense for us to write more original songs that if they, if they worked with the story or the concept, then, well, they couldn't be B sides. Um, and then we didn't really want to, I didn't really want to take myself out of, you know, they say like out of character. I didn't want to really take myself out of the story and start writing songs just about whatever. So we decided to do cover songs. So that's why with, and they came with the, they were actually on the iTunes exclusive because iTunes was just becoming, starting to become like a big thing, really popular. Yeah, yeah. And and if you pre-ordered the record on iTunes, then you got the covers we did, which we we recorded them all with the shipwreck sessions. So we did "Help" by the Beatles. We did "Go Your Own Way" by Fleetwood Mac. We did a No Effects song, which I did acoustic, and we did a Saves the Day song, which I did acoustic, <laughs> and. uh and it was yeah, and the other the other thing we recorded at the same time as Shipwreck is we recorded uh, uh our Apologize cover. So okay. so that was actually recorded alongside Shipwreck too, so it's the same it's the same drums and production and everything uh on, on there.
1: Well, that's really that's really interesting to know. I I definitely I didn't know that. And uh it was funny, I was watching again, as I said, I was watching the documentary and like I noticed Paul Mark in there doing part of the gang vocals for like, yeah. like, like the Beatles cover or whatever. Yeah, that's
0: right. <laughs> that's totally right. Yeah, they there's like a part I think when I'm like, when Josh is like on his phone, like do while he's doing the, uh, while he's doing like the the group vocals, he's like yeah. on, he's like on his BlackBerry. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, it's a bunch of guys from Paul Mark, Paul Mark and Paul Mark's old, uh, old band. Um, those guys are, yeah, are, are in it too. Which is which is yeah, it's kind of kind of funny. I remember that now. I'm like explaining to them what what the words are.
1: <laughs> yeah, on the Wikipedia page it's like though it's not technically like a credited appearance, this was the first uh time Paul Mark was on a Silverstein record.
0: I guess that's true. I, I never <laughs> I never thought about that, but yeah, I guess that's absolutely true.
1: And I did I had a um just a quick question about the end of the album like story-wise. Um uh, I feel like there's kind of some ambiguity to I've seen people reference the main character committing suicide, but I've also seen people reference him like succumbing to his illness. Um, Do you care to shed light on that?
0: (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I'll tell you something really funny about this whole story is I wrote it. um, And I usually, when I write things, I like to leave some things open to interpretation. And a lot of Mm -hmm. times I'll write something, and it'll, it'll have like minimum two meanings. Um, mm-hmm. or and sometimes you're talking about three, four meanings with within just like one phrase or one line. Like, so I, I write things intentionally that could be taken different ways. However, with Shepherd of the sand, I actually was trying to do that a lot less. I was trying, trying to make, trying not to make things too ambiguous. I was trying, I was trying to write, write in a way that was like, okay, this is the story. Just like, When you see a movie, like, and someone, you know, is, something happens, well, that happens. You know, it's, you know, it's not just an interpretation, it's an event. So, um, inevitably, with the format of a song, and it's an audio component, and there's no visual, you know, people are going to take things differently. And what I thought was so funny was, once the record came out, and people kind of got a little obsessed with it, and they started writing their own versions of the stories and and like there was somebody that wrote like a fucking whole novel like based on it and um yeah and um i don't know if it ever came out or anything but i they sent sent me a copy of it and and what was funny was i started using some of the shit that they said even though (laughs) i didn't intend on it so i I was like oh that's 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 kind of better than than my like my version I'm just going to say that it's that. (laughs) And then what's funny is over the years, I started forgetting which was the real, like the real one in in terms of how I wrote it. And which was the one that someone interpreted that I was like, oh, that's kind of a good take. I'm just going to use that. Um, Like if someone asked me an interview or something, right? Right. So, um, so it's funny answering it now because I haven't talked about the record so long, you know, like I talked about the record Mm -hmm. a lot when it came out and then over the years, like, you know, you just you know it doesn't get brought up in interviews like to this depth. So uh but, but with with the uh with the whole with the end of the record um and I I got to be I'm, maybe I'm talking a little bit slowly and I'll have to think it through a little bit because I haven't I didn't do any research before this interview. Uh <laughs> like the whole thing about the record is there's this post apocalyptic um thing going on, right? And in the first uh, song, uh, there's the the, you know, the pre It's like, uh, like as I see the whatever, uh, fuck, what is the line? Um, <laughs> the the pl- like plane, like it's like referencing the planes in the sky. Uh, that's gonna happen mm-hmm. in yeah. the end. I say I say I can see it coming to, I can see it coming to the end in the in the song, which is mm-hmm. the first track is directly foreshadowing the last track, which is called the end, right? Um, yeah, the the planes take over the sky. Is that what I say? I don't I don't remember remember yes, yes. the first song, but the exact line. But I referenced that, and then in the last track, of course, when I say, um, "Planes fill the sky." We'll both die tonight. We'll both die tonight. Well, it, it's sort of, it's sort of more like like this. You know, they're having this conversation, him and, and his his wife, and in the end, um, the it's kind of like. The military is coming in with planes and there's Mm. kind of like a bombing, you know, like a a drone, like a drone attack. Um, And that's kind of when they say, well, we'll we'll both die tonight is based on is based on that. However, does that is that really happening? Or is this just (laughs) a hallucination that is in his mind, you know, about uh, about uh like this event happening like is is there is there really like is there really the government and airplanes and everything out to get him or is this just in his head this whole idea of you know um the end of the world right mm-hmm. so that's kind of yeah. th- that's another re- the thing why it's called the end because it's like the end of the the end of the world so that that's kind of an interesting take is is um does he die from like the government, military, like killing him, like, you know, in a war, war type of event, or does he die from an illness, um, you know, his, his own illness, uh, th- the suicide angle, um, actually, I don't, I don't believe I ever thought about that, about a, him taking his <laughs> own life
1: yeah i saw that referenced in like a lot of reviews but it wasn't anything that i had ever picked up on either
0: <laughs> no and you know what to be honest i would i would never write that because you you know as early as our first record um there were there were some references that i would make to hurting yourself or self harm or or you know suicide and then that carried over into the second record a lot too um in fact i even there's even like a a hot suicide hotline number in, in our second record in the reissue. Um, you know, and I, I even kind of say like, Hey, if you, you know, if you're having suicidal thoughts, like you should talk to somebody. And that's, mm-hmm. I don't, so, and because that's something that's so near and dear to my, dear, my heart, that issue, I don't think I would write that character. I wouldn't write that character to kill himself. Cause that's not mm-hmm. a, to me, that's not a good ending of anything, both in real life and in, and in, and in a story, you know? Um, Although Sons of Anarchy was pretty good ending, but, um, (laughs) sorry, more spoilers, but, uh, yeah. So, um, but no, I, I, I think like that's, that's kind of the gist of the story is, is there's, there's a lot going on, um, in in the world and and the government and like, you know, there's things that I talk about with, you know, like I mentioned in born dead with the healthcare system and, and, you know, there's stuff with Mm. his, with his, his daughter in, in the, in the story and, uh, so it, there's a lot to take in but the mental health aspect of it um y- there are times in it where it's like okay is this really happening or is this just in his head and yeah um i'm going to leave most of that open to interpretation
1: <laughs> i mean that's it's really interesting you saying that stuff like that makes sense um as far as like my understanding of the lyrics and stuff, I actually saw in one of the like early interviews you had done about the album, you mentioned having like one notebook that you'd spent like the last year or so like writing all the concepts and ideas for the album in, and you were like, oh, maybe one day we'll like auction it off for charity or something. Is that something that you still oh, have like track of? Yeah, yeah, Like, yeah, 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 the, like I, the
0: notebook that I had, that I wrote everything in. Yeah, I, I have that notebook somewhere still. I don't know if I ever want to part with it, though, to be honest. If that's selfish. (laughs) Um, Because that's going to be pretty cool to look at in, like, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, to see that again and remember.
1: And... I think just the last kind of overarching question I had about the album is kind of like uh like the artwork you went with um Martin Whitfooth who had has done pretty much everything I think besides um Dead Reflection. Yeah. Could you talk a little about like your collaboration with him and your working relationship?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um he he's amazing. Um he's an amazing person, an amazing amazing artist. And what was pretty cool about about um you know all i mean all the records really but but this one in particular was um mo, mo, well most well okay most of the records had been um his kind of his idea um <laughs> we would send that's not really true some of the records were his idea like i'm alive and everything i touch was his idea to have the 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 monolithic structure and the and the ouroboros And he, he thought the Buffalo kind of thing worked for, for that. And then Mm -hmm. for, for wind shifts and then rescue, you know, he, he thought the carrier pigeon was, was cool. And, you know, like a bunch of the concepts and and arrivals and departures to have the train. That was his idea. But with uh, shipwreck in the sand, I said, the cover's got to be a burning house. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's like the start of the, the story. and, you know, there's basically there's got to be this this burning house and then there's got to be airplanes um, in the back, like, you know, in the sky um, that there's got to mm. be that on there. So that's why it was, you know, that's why it was done that way. And and I can't recall all the artwork inside because uh, it's been so long since I looked at it. But a, but a mm. bunch of the artwork inside was was a lot of it was, you know, based on the story and based on a lot of it was based on his interpretation of of the lyrics as well. Um, Mm. But, you know, another thing we didn't, we didn't mention, which I think maybe would confuse some people is the title of the record um, being Mm. a shipwreck in the sand, which seemingly doesn't have anything to do with like a burning house, you know, like you'd think like, Oh, it's called a shipwreck in the sand. Okay. Well then put a shipwreck in the sand on the cover, you know, (laughs) that would make more sense, I guess, just from the strict title. But, you know, that's, that's actually that part of the story is when he's, he's reading a story book. There's actually a, even a sample at the beginning. You could barely hear of a page turning um, if you listen really closely to the beginning of, of the song, a Shipwreck in the Sand. And that's when he's reading a story to his daughter. And the story is, is an analogy for kind of what he's going through with his family, um, you know, and basically his wife sort of planning a mutiny uh on his you know on his his life and his relationship with with her and their daughter
1: yeah definitely i mean i think that was kind of like at least when i first listened to the album i think that was kind of a little bit of a point of confusion as to like whether that was a separate story or like how it kind of worked into the story
0: yeah well that that was a, it's a really important part and that like i said that that was kind of the the thing that we used as the teaser to launch the record um mm-hmm. you know but the the record isn't the record is not about a shipwreck in the sand at all you know that's just a story and in, in a story within a story i guess
1: <laughs> yeah but i guess it works well as like a like you said kind of like a metaphor to the story in a way to to like nicely tie it up and summarize it yeah,
0: that's exactly what it is
1: for this week's mid-show shout out i want to praise the alternative the alternative has been my favorite music site for a long time well before i started writing for The site's dedication to independent music journalism is everything that is great about this music scene as a whole. And all of their support and encouragement for this podcast is part of what inspired me to make it a reality. Whether you're looking for interviews, reviews, commentary, or a new favorite band, The Alternative is truly the best place for you to find it. So please go follow the site on Twitter, at GetAlternative, or just add getalternative.com to your bookmarks. If you're so inclined, your support for the site's Patreon is endlessly appreciated. Any amount is welcome, but at the $5 a month level, you get a free digital album each month and a shirt each year, so that's an amazing bang for your buck. I'd like to extend my gratitude and love to The Alternative, and I know that you will love the community around it as much as I do. was there anything else that any other memories that have come up as we were talking or anything that you feel obliged to share <laughs>
0: no n- not not particularly i can remember one sort of interesting interesting story that uh that i can i can share that i don't think i've ever talked about but there was a there's a little bit of a uh there's this little uh, uh interlude i guess you'd call it track that's at the beginning And, uh, it's called their lips sink, sink ships Mm -hmm. and the, um, where it came from, it's like, you know, fly away, leave this bloody path behind your wing, you know, um, that actually came up, was inspired by Josh being in his house where he lived. And I guess he somehow a bird like came into his house Mm -hmm. and he doesn't still doesn't know how it got there. And it, like, came in and it started freaking out and then just flew right into the, like, I guess the window or something and, like, oh, splattered God. and was, like, blood everywhere. And and he, like, oh he was just like, what? Like, and it was, you know, it was like a sparrow. And it was like, I guess I really, like, he looked it up and it was like a super, super bad omen, <laughs> like, in a lot of, like, <laughs> cultures or whatever to have a sparrow fly hmm. in your house and die. So that's actually where he came in the studio like kind of freaked out about it one day and then that's where that's why I wrote those words um uh for for that for that little interlude.
1: Oh wow, <laughs> that's super cool. I, he actually uh he in, uh inspired the lyrics at the end of vices too, didn't he? Uh the I'm not oh, yeah. tonight. I'd rather sleep yeah. on the streets on a, <laughs> on a much
0: more humorous note. That's right. Yeah, I'll I'll uh <laughs> I'd rather sleep on the street. That's that's based on um uh, well, Josh, I'll tell this one quickly. I know we've been on the phone for like a long time, but uh, Josh and I were in Japan and everyone was kind of tired and jet lagged, but we had, Josh had like a friend there that was from, from Canada and she was trying to bug us to like come out and, and hang. So we're like, all right. So we took like multiple subway trains to get to this Rapungi or like part of Tokyo and we're at this club And it's like me, Josh, and this, his friend, and then this, like our Japanese handler, like translator. So we're in, we're there doing this, doing this. And then all of a sudden we can't find Josh. And and, I mean, we're drinking very heavily too. I should add. (laughs) It's important to the story and we can't find Josh. So we're looking everywhere. We have no idea. So finally it's like, well, I don't really want to leave Josh like in Tokyo alone, you know? And the other thing is like, we don't have, um, we don't have phones. Um, uh, mm-hmm. like our own phones like with texting or anything like uh, in Japan at the time they were using a different band so you couldn't just bring your phone over there and use it Uh, even if like you want to pay roaming it like just wouldn't work so we actually had phone rentals so you would rent like a, just a regular flip phone that you could just make calls on it so we could it was just so we could call each other if like you know something happened like this But of course we call Josh and and he doesn't answer the phone. So we're like, I don't know what to do. So we we're like, well, maybe he went back to the hotel. So we go back to the hotel. He's not there. I'm like, shit, I don't know what to do. Well, I guess I'm just going to like, you know, go to sleep. So I guess like a few hours later I was sleeping. Josh just came in and, you know, in the morning and he uh, had fallen asleep on the street just Literally like went outside, was tired, laid down in an alley, and he said he, he woke up because the sun like went in his, was was in his eyes in the morning. And he woke up and he was just surrounded by like Japanese business people like walking around him. Like just, just like oh nothing gosh. like nothing happened. <laughs> he said his wallet was in his hand, like as he was sleeping, and uh, <laughs> and his face hurt from being on the concrete. Uh, oh and he gosh. and he said he got up right away and just started walking and like somehow found the hotel. I don't know how you would find the hotel, like you're in random ass Japan. Like it was so so funny, and I don't know how. Like it was, we took multiple trains to get there. I don't know how how he found his way back just walking, but he did. And that's uh, that's what wh- why we wrote uh, yeah why we wrote the lyrics at the end of vices.
1: That sounds like so much like something that would happen in a movie. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, those were those were the days. I think we were on. I think we were on tour with Avril Lavigne in Japan at the time too. How weird is that?
1: Yeah, I mean that, that makes sense from what I know <laughs> scheduling wise. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for your interest in uh, in this record. It's it's a record that means a lot to me. Um, I think it's the first. It was the first record that um, we ever made, or I ever made in my life that I felt a lot of confidence and I felt like really good about. So it's, it's cool that, you know, 10 years later, people are still, uh, still celebrating it.
1: Okay, I know that was a long one, but it was so much fun, right? I truly hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I want to thank you for sticking around and supporting Fly on the Call for these past 10 episodes. There's so much more in the works that I'm excited for, so please stay tuned. And if you haven't ever listened to A Shipwreck in the Sand, please rectify that as soon as you can. It's a work of art. I'd like to thank Shane for taking the time to talk, being so open, and giving such in-depth answers. It was so much fun to transport myself back to 2009, and I hope you enjoyed the trip too. Happy 10 years to a shipwreck in the sand, and just about 20 to Silverstein. Thank you for all the memories you've given me. Don't forget to enter the giveaway via the pinned tweet at twitter.com slash flyonthecallpod. And check back Monday for a hint at next week's guest. A special thank you, as always, to The Alternative for helping to promote the show, Kaylin West of Tiny Stills for the theme song, and Michaela Jane Palermo for the artwork. You can keep up to date by subscribing to the podcast and following the show on Twitter and Instagram at FlyInTheCallPod. Feel free to email any questions, comments, or other feedback to me at FlyInTheCallPod at gmail.com. I don't know who needs to hear this, but you rock.
0: Hey, you. Did you have any plans this year? (laughs) How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman.